Well, good morning, LCF. I invite you to find a seat if you can find one. They're kind of valuable this morning, so hang on to it if you got one. And like I said, if you do have an opening, maybe you can move in a little and that'll help some folks coming in from the back. Do you realize that next Sunday will be the end of this year-long experience of uh, walking together through God's Word from Genesis to the book of Revelation? So we have a next Sunday when Tim will stand up here and teach the book of Revelation and he will answer every question you have on it in 25 minutes. So I'm looking forward to that. But that's next week. This morning uh, we find ourselves in the book of 1 John. But let's pause for a minute and I'm going to ask you a question about this experience. What is it that you hope occurs next Sunday after the teaching of the book of Revelation? What do you hope happens after we finish a year of studying together through God's Word? What, what is the end play? What, what were we trying to accomplish here? What's the goal of this experience? Well, you might say, well, the goal was to have greater knowledge and understanding of God's Word. And that would be true. We hope that happens. But that's not the end goal. That's an intermediate goal. And from my perspective, if you just stop there, then you've probably missed the whole point of this experience. This morning, as we look at 1 John in our journey through God's Word, we see that the book of 1 John, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were all written by the Apostle John. And this morning in 1 John, John's going to talk about the end goal, what we're trying to accomplish with this energy and this effort. Now, the purpose of John's gospel... Remember, John wrote a gospel, and then he wrote epistles, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. So this week and next week, you get the writings of John. And, and John's a phenomenal writer in that he really speaks to the whole gamut of the spiritual experience. In the gospel of John, he explains, I wrote the whole gospel for just one reason. Take a look at it, John 20, 30, and 31. He explains, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the entire Gospel of John was written for one reason. He said, I wrote it so that you would understand who Jesus is, that you would understand what he did, and that you would respond by believing in Him. We could call that Spirituality 101, the Gospel of John. It's how to become a child of God. How to get redeemed, justified. Now the letter of 1 John affirms that truth. In 1 John 5 it says this, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You know, if you think the Bible's message about salvation is, is unclear or vague or open to interpretation or complicated or complex, then, friend, you really haven't read the book because it just could not be any simpler. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. But this morning, you would misunderstand the purpose of what we're going to look at in 1 John if you read the book of 1 John thinking that its goal was to bring you to a saving faith in Christ. That is not what this letter is about. John was the apostle of fellowship. John probably walked closer to Jesus during his earthly ministry than anyone else on the planet. 
He was described in John 22 as the other disciple, you know, the one Jesus loved. <laughs> or in 2120, he was recorded there, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was following them. This is the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper. John had many or Jesus had many disciples while he was on this earth, but nobody was following him closer than John. This is the apostle who would capture the words of Jesus about abiding in Christ in John 15, and he just seemed to understand what they meant more than the other 12 did. So when John writes this letter, he's not writing about spirituality 101. He's talking about what comes next. What comes after that? We could call the letter of 1 John Spirituality 201, moving up the scale. And John's writings, like I said, are phenomenal in that in the Gospel of John, we have Spirituality 101, how to become a Christian, justification, redemption. In Romans, it talks a little more about what happens there when it, it says being justified, and that happens when you believe, when you are redeemed. Being justified as a gift by His grace through redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But in the letter of 1 John, he's going to be talking about something called sanctification. Sanctification, that Greek word translated there, hagiosmos, means to make something holy. So when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about the process of making something holy. Now, redemption, justification, belief, being born again, that's an event. But sanctification is a process. So those are different. Sanctification, the process, begins after justification, the event. And during this period of sanctification, we are in the process of being made like Christ. Now, due to justification, belief, positionally, we are blameless, we are holy, we are saints in Christ. But practically speaking, as we come to this day of our lives... We are saints in training, and we all kind of know that, don't we? You know, we kind of got that we're not completely there yet. We are saints under construction in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, look around you this morning. You see a plastic wall behind you. You see pipes that lead to nowhere, and you realize this place is under construction. Well, maybe we should just leave it that way because it would remind us we are the same thing. All right, that is us. We are under construction. You got some pipes that aren't connected yet, okay? You got some plastic walls where uh, there may not be one later. We are people under construction. We are in the process of sanctification. And Jesus knew about this. He prayed for us in John 17, 17, where he said, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is God's will for our lives. Have you ever asked the question, God, what's your will for my life? Well, I got it right here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's something that we choose each day. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's something that requires the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And sanctification is made possible because of the grace of God. Matt Chandler would write, Without a heart transformed by the grace of Christ, we just continue to manage external and internal darkness. Romans 5 talks about the process. It says, Therefore, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the process of sanctification is taking place in the context of the grace of God in which we stand. Jerry Bridges talked about the grace of God when he said, Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. So our sanctification is fueled by God's grace working in our lives. And next week, Tim's going to talk about the book of Revelation, and that talks about spirituality 301, glorification. In 1 Corinthians 15, 53, it's talking about that when it says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Glorification is when we exchange this human body for a heavenly body. And spirituality 301 is eternity with Christ. And the book of Revelation is going to talk about that next week. It's going to talk about the return of Christ. It's going to talk about the wrapping up of human history. It's going to talk about the beginning of our eternity with Christ in heaven. And it says that's something that we're to be looking forward to, to be anticipating. So... As we live out these days, we are looking back upon our justification, our redemption, with a spirit of thanksgiving. We're looking forward to our glorification with a spirit of anticipation. And we are living now, today, in the present, in the middle of this process of sanctification with a spirit of cooperation and obedience. So what Romans was talking about when it said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those verses are talking about the process of sanctification. 1 John is about sanctification. 1 John is a call by the Apostle John to fellowship with Christ. It's a call for us to walk in the light, as he will say it. It's a call to greater intimacy with Christ. It's a call to experience the fullness of Christ. It's a call to enjoy your relationship with your Savior. Everybody here probably knows a couple that are legally married, but seemingly not happy together. They have a legal relationship. That's a husband, it's a wife. But there just doesn't seem to be loving, joyful intimacy in that relationship. And when you see that, it seems very wrong, doesn't it? Isn't there something within you that kind of cries out, that's just not the way it's supposed to be. What a, what a waste, what a shame. It's not right. And that's kind of what First John's doing in the letter of First John, what John's doing. He's calling to Christians, and he's saying, you've got the potential for a beautiful relationship here. And he's calling us to the fullness. He's calling us to walk in the light. And John's an expert at this because he knew, he knew what it meant to do that. Take a look at the way he describes it in the book of 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning... That which we have heard, I'm not giving you a second hand, I, I heard it straight from his mouth. We have seen with our eyes, I watched this stuff. We have looked at, we have touched with our hands, this we proclaim 
concerning the word of life, the life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, and we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Why? So that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 4 is really important here. Don't miss this. He just is about to tell you why he wrote the entire letter of 1 John. Why did I write this? We write this to make our joy complete. If you understand 1 John and practice it, you have joy. I was trying to think of how to communicate the concept of joy. I I checked with all my theological sources and didn't find anything that really appealed to me. So I went down and stood in the kitchen, and as I was standing before the refrigerator, it came to me. (laughs) Never... Never underestimate the power of a refrigerator. Joy. How do you explain what joy is? Joy is that celebration of life in your attitude and in your heart. And these little grandkids of mine aren't two years old yet, but they understand what joy is. And John said, if you understand and you practice what's in the book of 1 John, you get this. Joy. Not only do you get it, But God the Father feels like this when his children walk in the light. It's an interesting way he says it there in verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Our, well, who's the our? Well, if you look back in verse 3, he's telling you it's God the Father has joy when his children walk in the light. Jesus Christ has joy. John, as a spiritual leader in the church, as a spiritual parent, has joy and the members of the church experience the joy of Christ. So it's, it's a shared joy. I've been teaching the Word for uh, uh, a lot of years in the church, and it always brings me joy to open God's Word, and if I'm just reading it for myself or teaching it. But you know what also brings me joy? To look back and see my son leading worship. It's good to have joy, isn't it? It's good to see your kids walk in light. In about 10 years, I want to do this, and I want to see Eleanor singing, and I want to see Palmer on the drums. Three generations of joy. John is a spiritual parent. He says it, makes, it gives me joy when our, you as the church walk in the light and it gives God the Father joy. So this is about joy. First John is about finding joy in the fullness in Christ. And in verse 5, we pick up the story there. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 1 John is literally an instruction manual on how to walk in the light. Now, walking in the light is a metaphor, and we've all heard it many times, but what, is it, uh, what does it mean to walk in the light? Let's break that down a little. We won't cover the whole book, but we're going to look at the first two chapters, and we'll see three things that John says it means to walk in the light. The first one is this. We walk in the light by applying God's solution to our sin problem. By applying God's solution to our sin problem. Look at verse 8. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His word is not in us. When you believe, when you are born again into the family of God, the light comes on. And when you turn on the light, it shows you the reality of the situation. Have you ever got up maybe in the middle of the night there and you've going to try to make your way over to the bathroom and you don't want to turn on light so you just you know it's your bedroom you know how to get around this thing but somehow you slightly mismaneuver and as you go to turn that last corner your left little toe slams into the immovable corner of the bed and at that point boy are you awake what were you doing there you were walking in darkness Now, if you had turned on the light, you would have seen the reality of the situation, adjusted your path, avoided the problem, and avoided the pain. Walking in the light protects you because it allows you to see reality, to see things as they really are, and to avoid the dangerous places. Here's another thing about darkness. It hides stuff. Have you ever walked into a dark basement or a garage and you flip on a light and there's maybe a, a big cockroach or a spider that used to be quite happy sitting in the middle of that dark floor, but all of a sudden now it's running for cover because you turned the light on. Darkness hides things. Before coming to Christ, you know, you might pretend that you're fine and everything's okay, but if you're doing that, you're doing it with faulty reasoning. Probably goes something like this. You ask the question, am I a good guy? And you come up with an answer, yes, by finding some examples of the worst of humanity and then thinking, well, I'm obviously better than them, and God's probably going to have to grade on a curve here. So, um, you know, although I'm not perfect, I've got to be pretty much okay. I'm in the middle there somewhere, aren't I? Well, that's faulty reasoning. Because if you open God's Word or after coming to Christ and you see the righteousness and the holiness of God, that really changes everything. When we walk in the light, when we turn on the light, we're going to see some things that we didn't used to see. Not because they weren't there, but because the light wasn't on. So before faith, we thought everything was fine, everything was good, but we become a Christian or we open God's Word and we look in there and we see what God has to say, and all of a sudden we begin to notice some things maybe that we never noticed before. And these are potential obstacles on the path that we could stumble over. You come to faith and maybe you you get a little bit down the road and you begin to recognize an unforgiving spirit in your heart. Something happened a couple years ago and you just can't let it go. Or maybe you start on the path and you realize, "Why, why are these people around me so irritating? And you begin to realize, maybe I've got an angry spirit in me and it's just spilling out on other people. Or maybe I've got a bitter spirit. Something happened. There was an injury a a long time ago, and and I just won't let it go. Or maybe you see a jealous spirit, or a lustful spirit, or a greedy spirit, or a, a prejudice, or a pride, or a hatred. Maybe you see within your heart unhealthy attachments and addictions. What do you do when you come across that stuff? How do you respond when you encounter sin in your life? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says, here's the right thing to do, confess. Confess. In other words, the word confess just literally means to agree with God. It means to agree with God about it. 
Agree with God. Don't rationalize. Rationalizing is where you come up with a hundred examples of why it was a good idea for you to do the wrong thing. You know, that's rationalization. Don't do that. Don't blame others. That's where you go, well, I wouldn't have done that if you, 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 and you. That's projection. Don't blame God. That's where you say, hey, this is just the way I am. That's the way God made me. It's the way I am, you know. It's the way I've always been. No. Rather, Scripture says the right thing to do is confess. Identify it. Own it. Confess it. Agree with God's view of it. Call it what it is. And then come to the Father with a heart of confession and a heart of repentance. Now, why should we respond to sin like that when we see it in our lives? Well, he gives us two reasons. Number one, because sin is a destroyer. Sin is a destroyer. It always has been and it always will be. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. In other words, don't think you're getting away with anything. Uh, That just doesn't happen. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. We reap what we sow more than we sow later than we sow. I'm going to say that again. You will always reap what you sow, whether righteousness to righteousness or sin to destruction. We reap what we sow more than we sow later than we sow. Always going to be true. So that's one reason we turn away from sin. Another is because although sin may be a destroyer, God is a restorer. You don't have to wonder what's going to happen when you come to God in confession. Why? Because we can be confident in His loving, forgiving response. He's just faithful like that. And because of that, we are confident in his ability not only to cleanse us from that area we stumbled, but God says, when you come to me in confession, I'm just going to clean you all up. I'm going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe even stuff you don't even know about yet. You just come to me with what you know, and and I'm going to give you a deep cleaning confession. Now, when... When should we come to God in confession when we notice we have stumbled? Is it the next time we're in church, next time we're in small group or Bible study? Do we catch it during devotions in the morning? Well, no. Immediately is the best way to think about this. Immediately, the moment the Holy Spirit brings something to your attention that's inconsistent with who you are in Christ, that is the time to take it to God. Remember, sin is a destroyer. Do not give it a foothold in your life. If you went home this afternoon and uh, if there was a Chiefs game and you turned it on and you were sitting down there and it was the middle of the first period and it was kind of an interesting game and one of your kids came downstairs and said, oh, by the way, Dad, I, I know you told me not to play with matches, but, you know, I find them kind of interesting and I did find some matches. So I've been playing with them up in my room and, well, things, you know, have gotten a little out of hand and so I guess my room's on fire and I felt like it would be you know, the appropriate thing to come down and tell you. Uh, so anyway, that's what's up. Would you sit there and say, well, thanks for bringing that to me, Johnny, but, you know, this is a really interesting game right now, and we're about ready to take the ball down the field. So, I, you know, halftime is uh, in about a half hour. So, you know, how about in halftime I'll come up and we'll take a look at that and see what we need to do. Would you do that? I don't think you would do that. I think you would leap out of that couch, you know, with lightning speed, and you would run upstairs and you would go at that because you know that every minute that you leave that fire burning, more destruction is going to happen and there's the potential here to take the whole house down you would act quickly and that's the way we should be with sin when the holy spirit brings it to our attention that is the moment to go for cleansing don't let it destroy don't let it burn your house down 
before you get things right. And here's another thing. When it's time to get that right, you don't have to do it alone. 2-1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. Did you know that when you are going to God in confession to make things right, did you know you're not going alone? Did you know you have an advocate that's been appointed to go with you? John gives us this very clear teaching on how to respond to our sin because he knows that although we cannot be sinless, we can sin less as we become like Christ. And so he gives us a very practical teaching here on how to get back up when we fall down. And that's one of the ways we walk in the light. Let's take a look at a second way John tells us we can walk in the light. And you do that by loving God instead of loving the world. By loving God instead of loving the world. 2-3. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I don't know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So verse 3 tells us that one of the ways that we know we are His is that we keep His commands. But if you were to stop right there, you might misunderstand and think the essence of the Christian life is to obey commands out of some sense of maybe obligation or duty or just hyped up self-discipline. But if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Take a look at verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. You see, this is about love. It's natural and healthy for a child to desire to, to want to please and obey a father whom they are loved by and love. Because that act of obedience just flows naturally out of the loving relationship. That's walking in the light. Tony Evans defines loving God as this, passionately and righteously pursuing His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. So that's loving God. What is not loving God? Well, not loving God is this strange aberration verse 4 is talking about. This person professing to know God, but living in darkness, walking in darkness. This would be an immature, a distracted, or a confused child of God who's loving the world instead of loving God. Second, or in chapter 2, verse 15, talks about that. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, verse 15, there is a command. And when you see a command in Scripture, what that means is that this is something that you could do, but you should not do. So what is it that we could do but should not do? Verse 15, do not love the world. Well, why not? He gives two reasons, doesn't he? The first, because you can't love God and the world at the same time. You see, love for the world displaces love for God, and love for God displaces love for the world. But they don't mix. Now, John mentions specifically three kinds of these old desires that don't mix with loving God. Kind of categorizes them. So the first category is lust of the flesh, and this would be the desire to live for pleasure, to attempt to find meaning in life through the endless pursuit of fun or thrills or pleasure or highs or new conquest or new experiences. Second category of, of desires that are inconsistent with loving God is the lust of the eyes. This is covetousness. This is the desire to live for possessions, to find meaning in life through the 
accumulation of things through the stockpiling of treasures and toys. And the third category that's inconsistent with loving God is the boastful pride of life, the desire to live for power, for position, for prestige. This is that desire to find meaning in life through the accomplishment of status, through the admiration and the envy of others. So why should we not love the world? Well, because it will displace our love for God. But a second reason is because the world and its lust are passing away. If I told you there's a new cruise line starting up, and they're going to build a boat exactly to exactly like the Titanic, and they're going to recreate that whole Titanic experience, would you buy a ticket and get on that cruise? I'm thinking not. I'm thinking you'd say, mm, I know how that one ends, and I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be on that boat. You know, go Caribbean. It'll be a lot warmer. Okay? <laughs> you wouldn't buy a, a ticket to get on that cruise. If I told you there's a company that's looking really good right now, but I got some insider knowledge, and in about six months, you know, that company is going down, it's going to go bankrupt, they're going to shutter it, would you run out of here and invest all the money that you had in your retirement savings in stock in that company? No. You'd say, that'd be foolish. Why, why would I invest in a company I know is going to go bankrupt? Well, that's the world. The world is that ship that's going to go down. The world is that company that's going bankrupt. Don't love the world because the world and its lusts, well, those things are passing away. Spent enough time over there. That's a dead end. That's going nowhere. Now's the time to be loving God, not loving that. A third way that John tells us we can walk in the light is by loving others as family. In verse 7 it says, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in darkness, and anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. Fellowship with God is a family affair. That's the point John's making. Now, what does it mean to love your brother? Well, biblical love could be defined as the decision to compassionately and responsibly pursue the well-being of another. You want to see a good example of that? Romans 5.8, which says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ made a decision to compassionately and responsibly pursue the well-being of another which was you and me. So he acted in love even when we were unaware of our need and not even asking for help. Biblical love is the decision to compassionately and responsibly pursue the well-being of another. It has nothing to do with feelings. It's the decision to act. Yeah, do a little survey. How many of you grew up and you had a brother or a sister uh, at home when you were growing up? Okay, majority. Do we have any uh, only children? Any, any you were it? Okay, yeah, we've got, we got a couple. Those are two very different experiences, aren't they? Two very different experiences. What is the point John's trying to make at this point in his letter? Well, I think the point he's trying to make here is that in the family of God, 
you can't pretend to be an only child. You can't pretend it's all about you. Because you got some brothers, you got some sisters around you. You're not flying solo, you're on a team. And you have some team members to love and be loved by. And John is saying in the family of God, you can't ask for God's love to come to you, but yet not go through you. There's just no option to be a cul-de-sac Christian. Authentic Christianity are people who are always conduits of the love of God. So he's saying, learn to love, decide to love, choose to love some brothers and sisters. Decide to get involved in the lives of some brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not talking here about friending them on Facebook, okay? I'm talking about like real relationships with real people. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Some people that you choose to share life with. You know them and they know you. You pray for them and they pray for you. You hurt with them and they hurt with you. You rejoice with them and they rejoice with you. Now, I know it's not possible for anyone here to know everyone here. The church is too big for that. But it is possible for everyone in this room to get dynamically connected to some others, to have your crew, your small group, your team, your platoon, that group of people that you are doing spiritual community with because you understand that loving others as family is God's will for your life. That you were never designed to walk this path alone and walking in the light means loving others as family. So we started by talking about what's the end goal of our year in the scriptures here. Was it that you would gain more knowledge and understanding of God's word? Well, yes, it was that. But that wasn't the end goal. That was an intermediate goal. The end goal is that through your knowledge and understanding of God's word, you would be renewed in your mind and your spirit and transformed in our hearts so that we would walk in the light. And as we walk in the light, we're looking back at our justification with a spirit of thankfulness. And we're looking forward to our glorification with a spirit of anticipation. And we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit in this middle zone of sanctification. And we're walking in the light. Which means that we are applying God's solution to our sin problem. We're not rationalizing. We're not blaming others. We're not blaming God. We identify it, we own it, we confess it, we agree with God, and we come and we receive God's forgiveness and cleansing because when we do that, we're walking in the light. And we're walking in the light by loving God instead of the world. And we're so filling our hearts with the love of God and love for God that it naturally displaces those old ways, those passing passions, those losing investments, those sinking boats that don't deserve any more of our time. Because now we can give our heart to something far greater. And by loving others as family. And remember, loving other people isn't feeling you know, warm thoughts. It's, it's a decision you make to compassionately and responsibly pursue the well-being of others. In 1971, Wilbur Reese wrote a little booklet. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek booklet. And he entitled it, $3 Worth of God. He wrote, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Well, the Apostle John would have 
none of that kind of thinking or living. He would say, you have got to be kidding. Do you realize you have the opportunity to experience the fullness of God? Let's close by reminding ourselves why the Apostle John took the time to share these insights with us. To make our joy complete. The joy is in the fullness. The joy is in walking in the light. So that we would live lives that honor God and bring joy to the heart of our Heavenly Father and so that our hearts and our days would be filled with the joy of knowing and of walking closely with Christ.